Hello, and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances, and I work for The Reader. Shall we, we've got just under a quarter of an hour, shall we have a look at the poem? Okay. This is um, a poem by Esther Morgan. We've met Esther Morgan before in the group, haven't we? And I think one or two people saw her at Gravity. We met her in real life as well. Yeah. And this one's called Charm. I want you to come closer. We're listening in here to a shared reading group happening at the Reader's Headquarters in Calderstone's Mansion House in Liverpool. It's a group run by Jan, who you just heard speaking there, and who we'll hear more from in this episode. Jan is the Heritage in Literature Research Coordinator at the Reader, which means it's Jan's job to find literature that can help bring to life the heritage of the old house and its surroundings, which have been home to the reader since 2011. Jan's shared reading group, which meets weekly in one of the reading rooms at Calderstones, is part of that work. I want you to come closer, like the deer that graced my garden one summer, advancing cautiously along the path its hide flickering in the noonday heat, to almost within reach of my hands. But you're shy, being dead, not easily glimpsed or lured, no matter how still I keep, how watchful, the moon of milk set out on the lawn each evening, still full at dawn. Perhaps Perhaps you appear when we're not looking, untouchable dust, bumping softly all night against the lit glass, or as thistles in the poorer fields, charming wings and gold out of the air. The poem they're reading is called Charm by Esther Morgan, and it's from a collection called The Silence Living in Houses. Esther Morgan visited Calderstone's during the Reader's Literary Festival, Gravity, in 2022, and read several poems from that collection. As always in a shared reading group, the members and Jan read the poem out loud a few times, and then pause to think, wonder, and share their responses. Perhaps it's... it's... Perhaps some, it's some, the thoughts of somebody who's been bereaved mm. and they're looking for something or someone to come back. Mm. You know, this being dead, not easily glimpsed or lured. You know, perhaps they're, they're trying to sort of conjure up the memory of somebody or their presence, you know, mm. out of their imagination or out of their grief. Mm. That feels really helpful, Viva. I want you to come closer. Perhaps you appear when we're not looking. Mm. Untouchable dust. Do you Mm. ever have a thought, you think, I must say this, and you can literally see the thought disappearing. Mm. (laughs) Mm. That's Mm. how this poem is making me feel. It's something just always slightly out of reach. Yes. Yes. Mm. That's lovely. Yeah. Mm. That's helpful. Mm. 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 It's something that you just cannot get hold of. Mm. Mm. Look, 
could, I mean, it really could be, you know, a, you know, bereavement, you know, somebody that you're badly, badly missing, mm-hmm. and you kind of want them to be there with you. Mm-hmm. I like the untouchable, the perhaps you appear when we're not looking, untouchable dust. It reminds me of, you know, if you're sitting sometimes and you, there's a shaft of sharp mm-hmm. sunlight coming across a dark, and you can see the dust moving around. Kind of my house anyway. The dust yes, moving yes, around yeah. in the in the in the air, you know. It's, yeah. And, uh, literally. Yes. 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 And it can look incredibly beautiful. It does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it does a bit like the thistles mm. in a scrubby field can be transformed to yes. something really beautiful. I'm thoughts about that now. Mm. Oh. Could the wings and the gold out of the air be birds? When Esther Morgan spoke at Gravity, she said that writing about the past involves a kind of excavation. And what is brought to light is usually incomplete. Of course, the past can never be entirely recovered. But poetry, Esther Morgan said, can move into the gaps, taking a fragment and imagining the whole, finding a curved handle and imagining the whole cup that it used to fit to. This imaginative re-engagement with the past is at the heart of the Readers Making Meaning Heritage Project, which is funded by National Lottery Heritage Fund, and in which, over two years, we're engaged in investigating aspects of the heritage of Calderstone's Mansion House and its surroundings, and bringing it to life, bringing that heritage to life, for its current inhabitants and visitors. And because we are the reader... One of the tools we use to do this imaginative re-engagement is literature. In this episode, we're going to take a walk around Calderstone's Mansion House with Jan and other colleagues and learn a little about its history and listen to literature that will hopefully bring those spaces and their former inhabitants to life again. I'm Jan and I'm the Heritage and Literature Coordinator here at the Reader at Calderstones in Liverpool. So Jan, we're standing in front of the park and there are dog walkers and kids on skateboards, prams and children running about and um, tell us what we're looking at. We're just standing in front of the house looking at this rather beautiful mansion, neoclassical in design. It's made of ashlar stone and built to a rather lovely symmetrical design with a a portico with four fine pillars in front. And the door's open. I can see people coming and going. And the door is open. People are going in and out. They can buy coffee inside. Lots of activities going on in the mansion house. So, yes, it's always a busy thoroughfare. Yeah. And tell us, who built this? Well, the house was built by a young man called Joseph Need Walker in 1828. 
Joseph was a lead merchant, but that doesn't really tell us the whole of a, the really fascinating family story. Um, Joseph's great-grandfather was a farmer in the northeast of England who happened to make nails on his farm, right. as so many of the farmers did. And his three sons caught the wave of the Industrial Revolution and built an iron-making forge. And by the turn of the century, the Walker family were the largest metalworking dynasty in the United Kingdom. And Joseph Need Walker's generation lived like gentlemen and all built themselves houses on a par with this. So they'd accrued immense wealth by being in the right place at the right time. Mm. So they went from a farm to their own mansion house. Absolutely, in three generations, yeah. And then it passed into other hands? It did. did it um, Joseph Need Walker lived here, he was 38 when he built the mansion house and moved in with his young wife and two small children and they went on to have quite a large family here. And Joseph lived here till his death in 1865, so quite a long residency. Mm. So I tend to think of it as Mr Walker's house. His son, Henry, inherited but never really lived here. It was on the market in 1872, only seven mm. years later. Didn't sell, um, but in 1875 it was bought by Charles McIver. Um, of the famous MacIver shipping brothers who went on to found the Cunard line. Mm. They lived here for 20 odd years, but by the turn of the century, by 1900, it was in council ownership. Right. And they had bought the estate as part of their commitment to create a ring of parks around the city for the health and well-being of the local populace. So it would have been a blank slate, almost. Joseph Walker took on just farmland and he created the mansion house from what would have been a farmhouse and the parkland from farmland. So it's almost making his own space, making his mark. Yeah, shaping and sculpting. What do you think Joseph would have thought of all the people coming and going in his beautifully created private park? It's difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is a house that was clearly built as a, a private family space, but at the same time, he was clearly a very sociable and gregarious man. He threw himself into lots of public roles as a magistrate, um, getting involved. We see him cropping up at flower and horticultural shows, at the Athenaeum, serving on juries. So he seems to be a sociable sort of person. Um, he built this house well away from the crowds of the city, but I like to think he would have enjoyed the fact that so many of the local people enjoy his house, sit in his what would have been his drawing room enjoying a coffee, sit in what was probably his butler's office reading some great literature. Um, I think he would have enjoyed it. <laughs> Song to Mark a Boundary by Anne Riddler In these tall trees, warbler and wren all day beat boundaries of music. Marking a province, the song of birds is functional, they say. 
this year at least, its function is delight for you in a new built house. Here tasting a first May. The notes seem colour of spring, made into sound. Viridian, leaves of beech, and powdery gay yellow of hornbeam. All that your window sees, green slopes and golden king cups for the play of evening light. Where the obedient trees compose a parkland picture. Far away, the hills of Radnor Forest. I name them yours, for the eye possesses what it can survey. New come, and welcome now to the bird's kingdom, this mortal nest. Newcomer, but no rival. My poem, too, is functional. I sing to claim your territory and to pray a blessing on your house and on your stay. We're going to go inside the house now and we're going to go to what would have been one of the servants' rooms, is that right? And is now used for reading. That's right. We, we know very little about the actual layout of the house, but the room that we're going to now, what's now the green reading room, we think would in the past have been the butler's room. And we think that because... Off that particular room is a, a large walk-in cupboard, small room, which is protected by a massive iron door of over an inch thick, which would have been the strong room, where valuables and silver would have been kept. So for that reason, we know that that was probably the bottom room. So this would have been the butler's room, and who was the butler? Well, unusually, actually, we have the same man in that role in 1851 and 1861, so he was quite a long-serving servant of the Walkers, and his name was William Morris. We've got a, a couple of details about his life, which we don't have for most of the servants. We know he was married, which was unusual for domestic servants, and again probably reflected that as a senior and a long-standing servant, he was perhaps paid rather more than, than many in domestic service. 
on a rather sadder note, we see him in the news locally again when he lost a son uh, in his young teenage years and Joseph Walker clearly paid for an obituary notice in the local papers. And he would have been in charge of how many servants? There were 14 servants registered in the census. Basically, the housekeeper would have been in charge of all the female servants and the butler, all of the male servants. And they would have been footmen? They would have included footmen. Um, he probably have overseen any male servants in the kitchen area, possibly the outside male servants as well, like the, um, the grooms and the carriage drivers and so on. But yes, um, we do know that the walkers kept two footmen, um, two young local boys called James and Charlie, one of whom came from Liverpool and one from Everton, about six miles away. Young Charlie Heath, who came from Everton, was only 16 years old in 1861, so uh, quite an onerous job for a young boy. What would it have involved? It would probably have involved accompanying um, Joseph Need Walker or his wife Catherine when they went out and about on visits or when Joseph went to his offices down at um, what was then called Nova Scotia. He had some warehouses down at the docks. So they would accompany them, run messages, run errands, take letters and notes around perhaps, but there would also have been a lot of duties inside the house, so they would have served meals and drinks, they'd have opened doors for visitors and for the family. The younger footman, Charlie, would probably have been in charge of cleaning any silver or glassware that was needed for the meals. So he would probably have come first thing in the morning, before he got dressed in all his finery, because it was a filthy job, he'd have come here every morning to clean the silver and the glass under the watchful eye of Mr Morris and then he'd go off and put on his beautiful footman's uniform and uh, be prepared to be the public face of uh, the elegant, well-run household of the Walkers. A Muse in Livery, or The Footman's Miscellany, by Robert Dodsley. Dear friend, since I am now at leisure, and in the country, taking pleasure. If it be worth your while to hear a silly footman's business there, I'll try to tell in easy rhyme how I in London spend my time. And first, as soon as laziness will let me, I rise from bed, and down I set me. To cleaning glasses, knives and plate, and such like dirty work as that, which, by the by, is what I hate. This done with expeditious care, to dress myself I straight prepare. I clean my buckles, black my shoes, powder my wig, and brush my clothes, take off my beard, and wash my face, and then I'm ready for the chase. Down comes my lady's woman straight. Where's Robin? Here. Pray take your hat, and go, and go, and go, and go, and this, and that, desire to know. The charge received, away run I, and here and there and yonder fly. With services and how do you do's, then home return full fraught with news. Here some short time does interpose, till warm effluches greet my nose, which from the spits and kettles fly, declaring dinner time is nigh. To lay the cloth I now prepare, 
with uniformity and care. In order knives and forks are laid, with folded napkins, salt and bread, the sideboards glittering to appear with plate and glass and chinaware, then ale and beer and wine decanted, and all things ready which are wanted. The smoking dishes enter in to stomach sharp a grateful scene, which on the table being placed, and some few ceremonies passed, they all sit down and fall to eating, whilst I behind stand silent waiting. This is the only pleasant hour which I have in the twenty-four, for whilst I unregarded stand, with ready salver in my hand, and seem to understand no more than just what's called for, out to pour, I hear, and mark the courtly phrases, and all the elegance that passes, disputes maintained without digression, with ready wit and fine expression. The laws of true politeness stated, and what good breeding is, debated, where all unanimously exclude the vain coquette, the formal prude, the ceremonious and the rude, the flattering fawning praising train, the fluttering empty noisy vein, detraction smut and what's profane. So we've reached the first floor of the mansion house. We've come up a grand open wrought iron staircase, bringing us into what would have been Mr. and Mrs. Walker's end of the house. And it seems to have been quite an unusual design for the period. There's a, a lantern light in the roof above us, which is a rectangular opening standing proud of the roof, which is glazed all the way around. So it lets in masses of natural light. And we can see, to the left and the right, two elegant archways mirroring each other, which may well have formed a very gracious entrance into the master bedrooms, perhaps via his and hers dressing rooms on either side of the house. The views from the large windows in these rooms over the park are lovely today, but in the Walker's time they'd have been even more striking, as they'd have seen a green sweep all the way down to the river which is obscured from us now by housing and trees. We're standing there now and there's desks and it's bare and, you know, it's an office space, so it's hard to think of it as an intimate space. But you, but you think if they gave this much space and importance, it's got to be for a reason. It's got to be... It, it, it was meaningful to them to be here. It's hard to get back to that almost now. Yes. But but we think that this would have been privacy. I, I think so. I think as much care and attention in design and as much expense has been lavished on these rooms as in the more public drawing rooms downstairs. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, I like to think that that's because these rooms represented a sort of private sanctuary where mm -hmm. the family could retreat from all the responsibilities of being... Mm -hmm. um, you know, an important merchant and an important public figure of the day and have a little bit of privacy and a little bit of 
more private, intimate mm. time as a family. Mm. Um, I think particularly for women in the sort of social role that Catherine Walker would have filled, any kind of privacy would have been a rare luxury. She'd have been under continual scrutiny. She'd have had servants around her all the time, guests in and out, social visits and duties to perform. And I think it must have been quite a relief, really, to metaphorically kick off her shoes and retreat to this suite of rooms where mm. they were just a couple, and, you know, the parents of a family of children and perhaps could speak a bit more freely. And there's a bit we've read, isn't there, from Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, which kind of... Is, it's a conversation that might have happened in one of these rooms. Yes. Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Yeah. So in this extract from Daniel Deronda, we, we see a scene like this where a mother and daughter can finally be themselves and, and talk more frankly. I hope it's a scene that didn't happen in a house like this because it's um, a fairly uncomfortable scene. And in this conversation between Gwendolyn and her mother, Mrs Davilo, I think we feel as acutely what they don't say to mm. each other as what's actually spoken. From Daniel Deronda by George Eliot. If you've laid out what we want, go and see to the other's bugle, Gwendolyn had said, when she and Mrs Davilo entered their black and yellow bedroom, where a pretty little white couch was prepared by the side of the black and yellow catafalque known as the best bed. I will help Mamma. But her first movement was to go to the tall mirror between the windows, which reflected herself and the room completely while her mamma sat down and also looked at the reflection. That is a becoming glass, Gwendolyn. Or is it the black and gold colour that sets you off? said Mrs Davilo, as Gwendolyn stood obliquely with her three-quarter face turned toward the mirror, and her left hand brushing back the stream of hair. I should make a tolerable Saint Cecilia with some white roses on my head, said Gwendolyn. Only how about my nose, mamma? I think saints' noses never in the least turn up. I wish you had given me your perfectly straight nose. It would have done for any sort of character. A nose of all work. Mine is only happy nose. It would not do so well for tragedy. Oh, my dear. Any nose will do to be miserable with in this world, said Mrs Davilo, with a deep, weary sigh, throwing her black bonnet on the table and resting her elbow near it. Now, Mamma said Gwendolyn, in a strongly remonstrant tone, turning away from the glass with an air of vexation. Don't begin to be dull here. It spoils all my pleasure, and everything may be so happy now. What have you to be gloomy about now? Nothing, dear, said Mrs Davilo, seeming to rouse herself, and beginning to take off her dress. It is always enough for me to see you happy. But you should be happy yourself, said Gwendolyn still discontentedly, though going to help her mamma with caressing touches. Can nobody be happy after they are quite young? You have made me feel sometimes as if nothing were of any use, with the girls so troublesome, and Jocosa so dreadfully wooden and ugly, and everything makeshift about us, and you looking so dull. What was the use of my being anything? But now you might be happy? So I shall, dear, said Mrs Davilo patting the cheek that was bending near her. Yes, but really, 
Not with a sort of make-believe, said Gwendolen, with resolute perseverance. See, what a hand and arm. Much more beautiful than mine. Anyone can see you are altogether more beautiful. No, no, dear. I was always heavier. Never half so charming as you are. Well, but what is the use of my being charming, if it is to end up in my being dull and not minding anything? Is that what marriage always comes to? No, child, certainly not. Marriage is the only happy state for a woman, as I trust you will prove. I will not put up with it if it's not a happy state. I am determined to be happy, at least not to go on muddling away my life as other people do, being and doing nothing remarkable. I have made up my mind not to let other people interfere with me as they have done. Here's some more water ready for you, Mamma. Gwendolen ended, proceeding to take off her own dress and then waiting to have her hair wound up by her mamma. Listening to that reading from Daniel Duranda and to Gwendolyn, so determined in that scene we heard to be the immovable centre of her own world, made me think of another moment in that novel, when Gwendolyn is in a kind of crisis... And George Eliot says that she is, for the first time, being dislodged from her supremacy in her own world and getting a sense that her horizon was but a dipping onward of an existence with which her own was revolving. This dizzying change in perspective, the sudden sense of some existence entirely other something elusive and hard to grasp. This all comes upon Gwendolyn as a terrible shock. But others of us might seek it out, whether consciously or not. I think that search for an enlarged view and a sense of other existences isn't far from what's happening in this heritage project at Calderstone's. And this is nowhere more apparent than at the last stop on this audio tour of Calderstones, when we'll visit the extremely ancient monument that gives the house and the park its name, the Calder Stones themselves. Hi, I'm Holly. I'm the Heritage Coordinator here at the Reader at Calderstones. So we're currently standing at the back of the mansion house um, in the middle of two lines of lovely honey-coloured stones, um, they're slightly blackened with age, um, and these are the colder stones themselves that the area, the house and the park are named after. They're over 4,000 years old and there's more that we don't know about them than that we do know about them. But we know that there was a burial mound um, created over 4,000 years ago, somewhere near here, um, and that these stones were part of that mound. Um, when that monument was broken up, um, the stones moved around for um, a period of time and then this is their, their final home where they're being properly looked after mm. by the reader after quite a long period of neglect. Mm. And tell me, I mean they're roughly hewn 
all different shapes and sizes. One's as big as me, taller than me, and there's some that are just at waist height, and they've got markings on them. What are they? Yeah, they're all covered in carvings, and they would have originally formed this structure of a tomb. The stones themselves would have formed the shape of a, almost like a small hut. Mm. Um, and there would have been a stone corridor leading up to this small stone hut. And then this structure would have been covered in earth. Um, so it would have looked a bit like a hobbit hole or a Teletubby mound. Oh, nice. um, and that would have been um, the structure within which they put the cremated remains of people in their community. Um, so these carvings that we see on the stones, they would have decorated the inside of that structure. So we've got spirals, um, circular depressions. So those are our cup and ring marks. They're our oldest carvings. Mm. Um, they're found in lots of other sites of this age as well, mm. um, suggesting a shared culture, definitely with um, people living in Ireland at the time, but potentially beyond that as well. We know that there was um, a big Neolithic community in Orkney as well at this time. Um, and then we have later um, carvings as well. There are some beautiful footprints, mm. um, which are probably Iron Age. Um, and then because they were a landmark, people added their carvings and their graffiti on it all through the ages. So we've got some medieval graffiti, um, which actually went undiscovered for, for years until a student on a school trip uh, came to visit the stones, dropped their pencil on the floor and discovered a very small but beautifully carved bird very, very close to the floor that none of the experts had spotted. Um, so for all we know, there are still carvings to be found here on the stones. The project we're all kind of engaged on at Calderstones, the what we've called the making meaning, which is trying to go back into the history. I just wonder, that came from the stones, didn't it? That sort of idea of making meaning, making your mark. Yeah, definitely part of it. Um, because there's these, these beautiful carvings on the stones and we don't know what they mean. Mm. Um, there was no mm. writing 4,000 years ago. They've left no trace of what if anything they were trying to communicate um, so all that we can do is um, guess and that sense of being able to look at history and then connect it with your own stories to make meaning from it actually is what we want to do with all of our heritage here at Calderstones mm. even the more recent stuff where we have those written records um, they only kind of become meaningful um, when we connect them to our own lives mm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Holly's mentioned that we've got some written records like census data from the 18th and 19th century, but we've only got sketchy outlines and uh, we need to use our imaginations to connect with mm. the people who might have moved through these spaces in the past. And I think mm. literature really helps us to do that mm. um, in a very kind of rich and rewarding way. Listening to Holly just then talking about the cups and rings and the beautiful spiral markings on the stones. There are lots of theories of what they might mean. Are they imitating the galaxies? And it reminded me of those lines in Esther Morgan's poem this morning about things flickering just out of sight. And oh, you can almost get the meaning, but not quite. You need that imaginative leap to make meaning, make connections there. And um, I think the stones are a, a wonderful kind of springboard for all sorts of interpretations and connections. Yeah.
and make the meanings together, try and get to the feelings of what, what led to these being here. I'm Graham, Heritage Volunteer with the Reader Organisation. I was just asking Graham, who's one of our Heritage Volunteers here, whether there are questions that visitors to the Stones tend to ask of things they're interested in. Well, first of all, they often had no idea that they existed. Um, and the first thing they usually want to know is where do they come from. So I usually explain to them that, that, that they were from a location not far from here um, and they were part of a tomb. And, and we get into the story then of what they, what they represent um, and how they've been presented in the past and how unsuitable that was and didn't really educate people. Uh, but now, in this setting, um, it gives a much more clearer aid to the imagination as to as to as to what they were and and mm -hmm. you can explain to them that, that they were in a uh, they were in like a like in a row and, and mm -hmm. formed part of a passageway and there was a huge dome of earth over them and you can see that people are actually picturing it in their minds and all of a sudden what looks just like a bunch of rocks is suddenly takes on a bit of a life of their own so it, it just it just expands the whole picture of what these stones are and what they represent do you feel familiar with them now, obviously having worked here a little while? Um, I feel really familiar with them. They're, they're so special to have them here as mm. the oldest monument in Liverpool. They're a really tangible connection to the past. It feels slightly magical to stand mm. in the middle of them and know that this was a special and sacred place for people such a long time ago mm. and being here at the reader as well is very special mm. because um, when we do shared reading we do that connecting with other people um, understanding of the world deep thinking thinking about our purpose mm. um, and it feels like the right place to be doing those things here with the colder stones Scara Bray by George Mackay Brown Here in our village in the west we are little regarded. The lords of Tilth and Loch are quarrying, we hear, great stones to make a stone circle. In the last of the snow a great one died in that stone hollow in the east. A winter sunset will touch his mouth. He carries a cairn gone on his cold finger to the country of the dead. They come here from Bercy to take our fish for taxes. Otherwise, we're left in peace with our small fires and pots. Will it be a morning for fishermen? The sun died in red flames, then the night swarmed with stars like fish. The sea gives and takes. The sea devoured four houses one winter. Ask the old one to make a clay lamp. The ripening sun may be pleased with the small flame at plough time.
that brings this tour of Calderstones and this episode to a close. The Reader podcast will be returning in future episodes later in the year to visit Calderstones again and the Reader's Heritage Project and delve more deeply into the project's different strands of inquiry. We'll learn about the investigation into connections between the Mansion House and the transatlantic slave trade. We'll hear the hidden stories of the trees and plants that surround the reader's home in Calderstones Park. And we'll visit the Garden Theatre at Calderstones, an outdoor performance space that was added to the house in 1947 and restored to its former glory by the reader. In all those future episodes, you can also expect to hear the literature that we're using to fill the gaps and bring new meaning and life to the memories and fragments of history uncovered. If you want to know more about Calderstones and about the Heritage Project, you can visit our website, www.thereader.org.uk. That's also the place to go if you want to find out more or get involved in any aspect of the Reader's work. There were so many people involved in putting together this episode, but the first thanks must go to Chris Lynn for his typical care and creativity in all the recording, editing and production of this episode. Huge thanks to Jan Heron, our tour guide, who also chose all the literature you've been listening to. Thanks to Holly Gilson, Heritage Coordinator at The Reader, who's leading so much of the work on this project. You can find an interview with Holly in issue 75 of The Reader magazine, copies of which are available through The Reader's website. Thanks to Graham and all the brilliant Heritage volunteers at Calderstones. Thanks to all the members of the Tuesday Time Travellers Shared Reading Group, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. Thanks to our readers, who were, in order, Jamie Barton, Peter Doran, Samantha Wilson and Drummond Moyer. Thanks to Esther Morgan. You can find links to her poetry collections in the description of this episode. Finally, we are so grateful to the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the funders of the two-year Making Meaning project at Calderstones. Thanks to you too for listening right to the end. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review the podcast and subscribe to get future episodes as soon as they are released. Until next time, goodbye. Hello, I'm Maxine Peake and I'm a patron of The Reader which is a national charity on a mission to bring about a reading revolution, using the power of literature and reading aloud to transform lives. Our volunteers around the country bring people together in small groups to read great stories and poems and create powerful moments of connection. We call this shared reading. In a world that feels increasingly divided and with increased pressures on our mental health, Shared reading offers time and space to share what matters, improving well-being and reducing loneliness. If you want to support The Reader's vital work, visit www.thereader.org.uk to donate or get involved. Thank you.